Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And you know the time runs out very quickly, so you better call us right now if you've got a question for him in Joburg on 011-883-0702 and in Cape Town on 021-446-0567. The Naked Scientist will take all your questions for the next 22 minutes or so or tweet us at Eusebius at Radio 702 at Cape Talk. You can also SMS your questions. We'll pick them up on the SMS line 31702 or 31567. Hello, Chris. Oh, good morning. I am excited to talk about this one. I'm someone whose vision gets worse every single year. Magnetic control of vision. And it seems like a fascinating uh, pioneering treatment has been performed in the UK. Yep. This is a person who, who's a 49-year-old former track driver who had to give up work because he developed a visual condition called nystagmus. And this is where your eyes move when they shouldn't move. And if someone has nystagmus, then instead of looking straight at something and being able to maintain their gaze, looking straight at something, the eyes spontaneously wander off to one side. They float or drift off, and then they flick back, and they drift off and flick back. And this can happen either side to side or up and down. And it's very debilitating and disabling. You can't stare straight at things. It makes you feel dizzy and disorientated. So what a group of neurologists and eye surgeons in London at University College London have done, and this is Parashkev Nachev and his colleagues, they have implanted magnets into this person's eyes in order to help control their eye movements. So four years ago, because they've had a nice long follow-up on this patient to make sure their technique worked, and Mm. they've just published it in the journal Ophthalmology this week, they got the guy in, they implanted a very powerful but safely encased in titanium magnet into the socket of the eye, Hmm. and then they implanted another magnet behind the muscle or one of the muscles that inserts into the outer globe of the eye to help you move your eye. And the rationale for doing this is that the magnets attract each other and this helps to keep the eye locked in position. But when the person wants to voluntarily move their eye, then the muscles are sufficiently strong to overcome the attraction of the magnets. So they're still able to move their eye normally. It doesn't cause any damage or inflammation or restriction on the eye. But what it does do is lock the eye in place when they're staring straight at something. It stops it just naturally and gently drifting off. And the person's quality of life in their paper has has improved enormously and the person's gone from being un, unable to go to work to now in paid employment again. And so now they're doing a bigger trial to try this on other people with the same problem, nystagmus, to see if they can help others too. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Okay, let's take our first call. We've got one in Reimser. JR, welcome to the show. Good day, you see, how are you? Very well, thanks. What's your question for Chris? Um, I just need to find out health qualities uh, between mineral, uh, still water, and fatty water. 
I tend to be addicted to sparkling water, and I'm not too sure if it's the right thing. <laughs> you and me both, Chris. <laughs> so can you can you just uh, tell me the question again? Because I didn't he quite wants catch to. It. I, yeah, he asked it as a comparative question, but I think he really wants to know whether too much sparkling water is bad for you, and secondarily, whether I don't know if it does have benefits, whether those benefits may be marginally better than still water. Okay, well, water's water, so the water in the equation doesn't make any difference. But Mm. when we make water sparkling, what we're doing is dissolving carbon dioxide, the gas, in the water. So water is relatively able to hold a reasonable amount of carbon dioxide, and it's forced in under pressure. And it's only when you take the cap off and release the pressure that the bubbles begin to come out. Now, this does two things. One, the bubbles have an interesting and exciting effect in your mouth because when we eat something it's not just the flavor of food that we're experiencing our brain is integrating the full the full food experience it's both the smell it's the taste it's the temperature and it's the acidity and also the texture of food all of that contributes to the taste of what we put in our mouths and of course when the bubbles but pop in your mouth. They produce quite a pleasant sensation, and some people like that, and it becomes part and parcel of of the drink experience. That's why champagne has a unique taste, Mm. or fizzy sparkling wines have a unique taste compared to white wine. In fact, the wine hasn't changed. It's just the presence of the bubbles. That's one thing. The other thing that it does is because carbon dioxide is an acid anhydride, in other words, when the carbon dioxide dissolves in water, it makes a weak acid called carbonic acid. And acids tend to have a lemony flavour, naturally. So when they hit your taste buds, they activate the same systems that you would taste lemony flavours with. And and this is actually part of the reason why citrus fruits, which are quite acid, do have the flavour that they do. It's because of the acid. Mm. And so, therefore, you also have an additional flavour experience when you drink fizzy water owing to the presence of the acid. So there's a range of different things there. Um, There's not really going to be any health consequence. Fizzy drinks including sparkling water, being a bit more acid, are therefore a bit more harmful to your teeth because they would demineralise your teeth a bit faster than other stuff. But then if you're drinking water, you're not drinking fizzy sugary pop, which is going to be far worse for your teeth. Mm. So I would say enjoy the fizzy water and it's probably not going to do you any long-term harm at all. Great, there you go, JR. Pop one open. Okay, let's take a question from the SMS line, Chris. Tommy writes to us and says, I am now 55 years old, Chris. My entire head of hair is white, but my pubic area is still pitch black. Why? Uh, does he dye his pubes? I don't know. Maybe. Um, <laughs> Maybe he no, knows the answer um, himself. The answer is that it's very patchy across your body. The reason hair has the colour it does, whether it's black or white or blonde or anything, the natural colour of hair, it's a protein called keratin, is white. Mm. And when our body makes keratin from a, a ring of stem cells under the skin in what's called a hair follicle, another population of cells called melanocytes add to the hair the chemical melanin, which is the same stuff that makes your skin have the colour that it does. And there are different melanin recipes. There's a, a so-called pheomelanin, which is a yellowy colour if you have blondy hair, then you have more of that relative to eumelanin, which is the darker stuff that makes your hair look black. Now, for some reason, we don't really understand why, the melanocytes in hair follicles die off or stop working properly at a much younger age than the follicles that make the hairs. Mm. So what happens is that eventually you stop being able to add any pigment or paint your hairs a certain colour, and they revert back to the natural colour of the hair follicle. 
This does not occur uniformly across the body. You'll notice that some people who grow a beard may have a completely black beard with, with a couple of white streaks in it here and there. You get the same sort of patchiness on, on your head sometimes. Not to be confused with someone who has vitiligo, the immune condition that damages the ability of the skin and the underlying hair follicles to add colour to the skin and hair. That's something quite different. But as part of the ageing process, and we don't really understand why, you lose these melanocytes and the hair follicles in some parts of the body earlier than others, and this makes the hair revert back to its white colour. Mongani in Soweto, good morning. Hello. Hi, Mongani, what is your question? Uh, hi, Sibis. Hi, Dr. Chris. I just want to know, is, uh, is cert- does certain vaccination cause autism? Uh, Okay, he wants to know whether any vaccinations right. cause autism. That was a big debate in the UK. Has it been settled now in the public space, Chris? Yes, I mean, this is a number of... It's almost it's about two decades yeah. old now, this argument, isn't it? And uh, and it all stemmed from a piece of research by a guy called Wakefield, Andrew Wakefield, who showed an association, apparently, between having certain types of vaccine and developing the developmental condition, which affects children and turns them into adults or, or produces a condition in which adults um, or children don't communicate very well and have a number of other neurodevelopmental problems, and that was autism. And... As a result of that, there was an enormous backlash and people stopped getting vaccinated. And then, in turn, we've had a very big series of problems, not just in Britain, but in many countries, with, as a consequence of the lack of vaccination, breakthrough infection with diseases like measles, which can be life-threatening. But one other consequence is that people have now gone and done very big studies where they have compared the rates of autism and other diseases and developmental conditions in individuals who were vaccinated and individuals who were not vaccinated. And when I say very big, some of the studies, like one done in Japan a few years ago, have got a third to half a million people considered in them. And the evidence that they found from these studies was that the rates of autism were no different or were even higher in the people who didn't get vaccinated compared to those who did. So there is no evidence at the moment linking vaccines like MMR with diseases like autism and the evidence is that you're far safer having an MMR both my kids had their MMR their measles mumps and rubella vaccines um, because you're far better off not catching measles for example than you are uh, to be even if there were a risk the risk would be tiny and therefore you're far more likely to have a consequence from measles which kills people and causes all kinds of consequences than not so my advice would be there is no danger Um, from autism-like disorders. Uh, There is a real danger from measles-like disorders, measles, so you're far better off to get vaccinated. 17 minutes after 10, you're listening to the familiar voice of the Naked Scientist. You've got a question for him, 011-8830702 in Joburg and in Cape Town on 021-446-0567. More of your questions after this. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Oh double one double eight three oh seven oh two if you have a question for Chris and also give us a call in Cape Town alternatively oh two one double four six oh five six seven. Tom, good morning, welcome. Ah, good morning. Um my my question for Chris is uh simple. Um why do spaceships uh go so fast when they enter the Earth's atmosphere and risk burning up? Why don't they just go slowly and enter the Earth's atmosphere gently? Oh, hi, Tom. Good morning. Um, Good morning. The answer is that in order to be in orbit, then they have to be travelling incredibly fast because in order to stay in orbit, they have to avoid being pulled back down to the Earth's surface by gravity. 
because an, an, an orbiting object is already moving at kilometers per second. Um, because mm -hmm. in order to stay in orbit, it's got to be traveling sufficiently fast that as it falls towards the Earth's surface, the curvature of the Earth takes the planet out of the way. Now, Isaac Newton thought about this um, and actually wrote about it hundreds of years ago, not about spacecraft, but about orbits. And he had a thought experiment where he said, well, what we do is if we've got a gun on the Earth's surface, and I fire the gun reasonably hard, it fires the projectile a certain distance before gravity pulls it down and it hits the ground. Now I'll fire the gun a bit harder. The projectile will go further before gravity has pulled it down and it's hit the ground. If I fire the gun really, really, really hard, eventually I'll get to a point where the bullet is falling all the time towards the ground, but the Earth is curving out of the way because it's a ball, and therefore the thing is continuously falling towards the Earth's surface and missing. That is what an orbiting object is doing. So in order to be doing that, it's got to be coming out of Newton's gun incredibly fast. So these orbiting objects are not stationary in space. They may look like they're not doing very much, but they're actually moving along incredibly fast. The International Space Station is not very high up, you know, three or four hundred kilometres up. It's orbiting every 90 minutes. So you think about the velocity it has. Um, as it comes down towards a point on the Earth's surface, it has to lose that momentum. It does that as it interacts with the atmosphere and with the parachute to slow itself down. But it's, it's got that momentum, that kinetic energy already, and it has to shed it. That's why they're going so quickly, because they've, got, they've been in orbit and they then have to shed the energy. OK, thank you. But then why doesn't the, uh, uh, the Soyuz um, um, capsule, for instance, slow itself down as it wants to do the re-entry? Well, in order to do either. that, what you've got to do is you, you've, got to, you've got to do work against gravity because gravity is pulling you down towards the Earth. So if you change your trajectory and point towards the Earth's surface, you are being accelerated by gravity at the rate of, of, of about 10 newtons for every kilo. And so you're going to feel quite a considerable force. And as you drop into the Earth's outer atmosphere, the atmosphere is incredibly rarefied and thin. There's almost no air resistance, so you can't slow yourself down with a parachute. So you're going to accelerate to, a, to an even faster speed quite quickly. The only way to do that would be to fire some kind of thrusters or something to slow yourself down. You'd need to have all that fuel up there. You'd need to have a, a lot of energy stored on board your spacecraft to do that. So instead what we do is the, the compromise, which is you come in at the angle you come in at, which is the safest angle they can possibly manage. You... Uh, have a very heat-resistant system which is capable of fending off the onslaught and then as you enter atmosphere which is sufficiently capable of, of supporting a parachute, you deploy chutes and slow yourself down that way. Okay, thank you so much for that, Tom. Um, here's a question from our Twitter feed. Um, someone says, can you ask the naked scientist while you're at it whether a flu vaccine's effectiveness can in part depend on your weight? Well, the way a vaccine works, and in the case of flu vaccine, scientists and doctors will grow flu viruses in a laboratory which represent the kinds of flus which are circulating in the community or which they think are going to be circulating in the community because the World Health Organization coordinates this and they get samples of the flu which are in the opposite hemisphere in their winter and use that to produce the flu vaccine for the hemisphere that's going to be entering winter six months later. So it's always guesswork. The flu viruses, once they've been grown and have been tested to make sure they do produce an effective vaccine, are then chemically brutalised to smash the particles to pieces. And this is called a split vaccine. So what you end up with is virological shrapnel in this tube. And that shrapnel 
is not in and of itself protective against the... Sorry, is not in and of itself infectious. You could not cause flu in a person. But mm. when you inject that into a person, it shows the immune system what the major parts of the flu virus that's circulating look like. So you make antibodies and you, you make a bit of a, uh, an immune cell response, but you make lots of antibodies that can bind onto and neutralise those sorts of structures. The rationale is that if you then encounter flu, you will be defended or protected. So anything that impairs your ability of your immune system to recognise foreign things and mount a response against them could harm your immune response. So chronic diseases, heart disease, kidney disease, HIV, tuberculosis, anything that damages your body, malnutrition even, will impair your ability to make a good immune response, but you'll still make some. And therefore, it's always beneficial if you're in an at-risk group, someone who, who has a chronic disease or has an immune problem, it's always useful to have a killed vaccine, like the flu vaccine, to protect yourself, because the, the answer is the vaccine will always be better for you than catching the disease itself. OK, Nick, good morning. Yeah, good morning. I have a question for the naked scientist, uh, just as to why the flat Earth theory is gaining so much traction, even when science points towards the globe being around. In terms of the, the images from NASA, are all composite images apparently, according to the flat Earth theory. So I just wanted to get the naked scientist's viewpoint on this. Well, if you think about it, one of the things that's doing a lot of, or, or one of the things that's very much in the headlines in recent months is fake news. You must have come across this. And people are highlighting the fact, and in fact there's a paper in the journal Nature this week about it. There's also been a, a story that you just ran in the Eyewitness News about the fact that um, Donald Trump as, uh, as, is dominating headlines in the US. Mm. And what this is doing is taking people's eye off the media ball. And because the internet does not ask questions, it just proliferates information. And you don't have to have any kind of um, sort of credibility to just retweet something. You can say whatever you like on the internet and people will let you. What's happening is people are creating these sorts of echo chambers where um, a whole bunch of people who, are, who don't know any better all agree with you and you say something that they agree with, so they just echo it mm. by retweeting it. People are also... To make money online, they create what they call botnets. So they have all of these computers which are pretending to be people on Twitter and on other social media platforms. And what they do is bounce a story around amongst themselves. So they're all programmed to work together. And, and it gives the impression that thousands of people are all repeating, retweeting and sharing this piece of information, which... You know, when you go to a, a market store or a market store, if you see a hundred people all clustered in one area or looking at something, you think to yourself, oh, that must be interesting, that must be important. So you tend to pay more attention to it. And it may be nothing, but, but that's how we've evolved. You know, we have this fear of missing out. So as a result, people are tending to have their eye taken off of the ball and put onto inappropriate things or fake things. And as a result, a lot of misinformation is proliferating at the moment. Um, and I think probably all this business about the Earth being flat, which is utter rubbish, is one part of that. OK, let's squeeze in one final question. We've got two minutes left. Nick, a quick one. Hello, yes, uh, for Chris. Uh, just wondering, uh, you know, you sit in church or wherever, then your head itches, the next second your ear itches, the next second your elbow itches, the next second your <laughs> nose itches. What causes the itch? God works in mysterious ways. 
<laughs> yeah, must well, do, must be the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, the answer is that uh, you have a population of nerve cells in your skin that are unique and specific for itch sensation. And the reason they're there is because many of the things that are trying, from an evolutionary point of view, to do something nasty to you tend to tickle your skin. So biting insects, other kinds of things, and creepy crawlies they would produce a tickle sensation on your skin. So you have evolved to be very sensitive to minor irritations. And the idea is it draws attention to a patch of your body surface so that you can then scratch it, bat away the thing, or, or realise that something is wrong with that part of your body and then attend to it. And when we scratch an itch, what you're doing is actually triggering a minor amount of pain in the itchy area, and the minor amount of pain triggers a different population of nerve cells that feed back to your spinal cord and those nerve cells switch off the itch nerve cells. Why an itch wanders around your body, don't know. I mean, it might be an attentional thing where, uh, because you're a bit bored sitting there listening to someone giving a not terribly <laughs> stimulating sermon, perhaps what's happening is that it's making you more likely to focus on other bits of your body temporarily, and then you notice those minor irritations, and then you go and scratch them. Okay, Nick, I hope your mental itch has been scratched. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. <laughs> Have a wonderful weekend. We'll do it again next week. See you soon. Bye, Eusebius.